Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter The Access Point a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out The Access Point, airing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central Standard on livingcorporate.tv. Hey everybody, this is See It To Be It, the Wednesday podcast from Living Corporate. Living Corporate is a digital media network that centers and amplifies black and brown people at work. My name is Amy C. Wanninger, and I'm the host of See It To Be It. When I was growing up in rural Southern Indiana, I didn't know people who went to college or who worked in professional roles. I didn't know what those jobs looked like or how to break into them. But this show isn't about me, it's about my guests. Every week, I bring you career stories from everyday role models in jobs you may not know exist. More importantly, the folks I interview share their perspectives as black and brown professionals in jobs and environments where they may be the only. And in fact, my guest today is Tali Lavery, and she wrote a book called Confessions of Your Token Black Colleague. This is a powerful interview. You will not want to miss it. But before we get to the interview, we're going to tap in with Tristan for some career advice. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, back again to bring you another career tip. This week, let's talk about when to take jobs off your resume. Many of us have heard the rule that after 10 to 15 years, you should take experiences off of your resume. I used to give this advice too, but now I don't think the experience you should include on your resume is as cut and dry as the rule tries to make it out to be. In conversations with my clients, I focus less on the time limit and more on the relevancy. When we are writing our resumes, we want to focus on providing the most relevant experience and skills in the shortest amount of time. So during my intake calls, when we get to those experiences that are 10 to 15 years back, I always ask, Does this role contain a relevant skill set not already represented by a more recent job? If the answer is no, then we discuss either completely removing it from the resume or putting it in an additional experience section with only the job title, company name, and dates if we still want to showcase the background or career trajectory. But if the answer is yes, then we have a conversation on what skill sets that role showcases that differ from recent experiences, and we keep only that portion and ditch the rest. Now, some people, resume writers and career coaches included, don't necessarily like this advice. They may believe that this begins to create gaps in the resume, and to that I would say that completely removing anything 10 to 15 years back already creates a large gap between college and the first employment experience listed. They'll also say if the skill set is 10 to 15 years back, that it is probably outdated, to which I would say if that's the only place that represents the skill set, then why risk the chance of not getting the job because you omitted it? Remember, there's no one right way to write a resume, but the purpose of your resume is to show the employer that you can help them solve their problem. So drop your attachment to certain parts of your experience if they don't fit with where you're trying to go, and keep them if they do. 
Simply focus on how you can make yourself relevant. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network. Hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards, The Leadership Range is focused on having real, raw, soulful, and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out The Leadership Range everywhere you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to See It To Be It. My guest today is Tally Lavery. She's the owner and operator of Yum Yum Morale LLC, a workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion firm that helps business leaders create and foster equitable and sustainable work environments for marginalized people. Tally is also the author of a book entitled Confessions from Your Token Black Colleague. Tally, I cannot wait to dive into uh just the way you name things for starters, but your whole career in general. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so hello, everyone. So tell us, I want to start with the name of your company, Yum Yum Morale. Where did you come up with the name? What what led you to that that business name? The fact that you would you would ask me if I made you look, I made you ask. <laughs> that's that's for starters. Um, also, a, a couple of things. So I wanted it to be memorable. I wanted people to be curious. I wanted you to ask me what it meant. Um, and I wanted to teach a small lesson every chance that I got. And that lesson is never make an assumption about something. Always be open to hearing an explanation and having your mind be changed about what you think it is. Now, although it's yum yum, there is morale at the end. My company, you know, although we focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, I strongly believe that the way to get to that is by building overall morale within a company. Um, I know that at first glance, people think, oh, you come in and you give this sensitivity training and you're catering to the marginalized or BIPOC. Uh, but to me, the bigger picture is that you're catering to the organization as a whole. Another reason that it is very appealing, if you look at most diversity, equity, and inclusion companies, their branding is the very broad uh, rainbow colors, like red, yellow, green, blue. You look at our branding, it's very pastel, uh, soft. And so I liked the idea of making sure my client understands that while this is some tough stuff that we're talking about, our goal is to make it palatable, as palatable as possible for all parties that are receiving the information. If you ever have me speaking, if you ever see me speak or I'm engaging, I'm in a workshop, I have people, you know, I say, if I say something that you resonate with, I want you to say yum yum. That's your way of saying, I get it. You go girl, you know, if we're, if we're doing it virtually in the chat, people say yum yum when they agree with something. So that's where the name comes from. Um, yeah, it's really, fun. I, I'm glad, you know, a lot of people try to tell me don't do that, but it has been a really good thing. <laughs> I love it. And I like that your logo looks like an ice cream shop because <laughs> it, it, it just sets the stage for, I want to come in and sit down there. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think it's brilliant. Thank so you. how did you get into this work? Okay. So 
Um, in November of 2019, I ended a 10-year run of, of working as a corporate meeting and event planner. Um, I traveled all over doing events for the likes of Golden State Warriors. I operated as a manager of event at the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. I did events for tech giants. Um, and then my final event that I did was where Barack Obama was the speaker. And that was in October, 2019. Uh, and what happened is I just came to my wits end after that event. Had nothing to do with <laughs> President Obama, um, even though that was a tough, but I had been dealing with a great deal of microaggressions, the corporate meeting and event space. I was always the token. And I reached a point where I could no longer fight. I could no longer question myself. Like, what is it that I'm doing wrong? And I also reached a point where I didn't even want to live anymore because I felt like if I can't do the thing that I can do with my eyes closed and there's just always a problem, where do I fit? You know, and I had that going on with a number of other personal issues as well. And it just all came um, crumbling down. And it's funny because when that came crumbling down and I ended up spending some time in the hospital caring for myself, you know, on nurturing, nursing myself and being nursed back to, to health. Um, it took me back to that 10 year before when I left um, my purchasing career and went into marketing meetings and events. And I went to get a certification at San Francisco State University. And I remember telling the teacher, I said, I really wanna be um, a pharmaceutical, I wanna get into pharmaceutical meetings and events. And she said, oh honey, I don't know why they let you black gals come here thinking that they will never hire you. The only place they ever hire the black gals is over at La Quinta Inn and Banquet Services. And the, and the look on your face <laughs> is the look that the class had. And for some reason, when she said that, I just thought, I'm going to I'm not going to be elegant to end, like whatever. Um, and then after that, you know, classmates were mortified. They were apologizing, like she shouldn't have done that. They ended up reporting her the whole nine. But oddly enough, I graduated from that course on, a, I think it was on a Saturday, was the last day or something like that. And that following Wednesday, I landed my job as the manager of events at San Francisco uh, um, Chamber of Commerce. And I remember sending her an email. And although at that 10 year mark, when I just couldn't take it anymore, I was like, okay, I got through the door, but oh boy, did I pay for it. And I spent some time away. And so I had a lot of time to think because when you do something that severe and it gets that bad, you better start thinking, right? And it gave me the time to think. And I had so many thoughts. And one of the bigger ones was, this was just unfair. You've beat yourself up. And one of the things is that First of all, I had been told like for years, you need to write a book. The stories were so egregious. But for me, it was like, I need to write this down and I need to position myself as an expert so that the people that have the potential to make changes might just listen to me. It, that, that's where it was at. It was like, okay, you can't live like this anymore. You can't keep doing this. It is not working. You keep running into the same issue and it gets bigger and bigger and worse and worse. And I mean, I was so heartbroken because this Obama meeting was supposed to be life-changing and, you know, huge. And, and it was, it was quite rewarding, but the thing, the egregious nature of the things that I had to go through, it just took me so, and to get that low, it's like, what do you do next? You don't keep going into that. 
especially hearing that teacher when she said they don't hire the black gals it's like yeah so that's when I decided I'm going to start my firm and I want to go out and I want to start doing the teaching and I'm going to pin my story in my book confessions from your token black colleague and here we are I'm so sorry for what you've been through thank you and I'm so grateful that you survived it thank you um, because I know that there are there are folks who don't um, and I want to thank you for sharing and being so vulnerable because I know that there are people listening to this right now who, like you were then, are at their wit's end, who are blaming themselves, who yes. don't see a path forward. Yep. Um, and I, you know, I want to, I just want to thank you for sharing that to let folks know that you can put your feet on a different path. You can, you know, step out of these places that are, that are violent and hostile to you. And I want to say, you know, when you say you can, I feel privileged that I have been able to. I think that there are so many that can't. And that's another mm. reason that this is so important. There are so many that may, while they may not have ended their lives, their careers were ended. They're doing things they don't, they're not passionate about because they just were not allowed to do what they wanted to do. And it's painful. Right. And I talk a lot about systemic racism and all and intersectionality and all of the things that people of color go through and black women in particular. And when we are in the workplace and we cannot just do our jobs, it affects so many other things. It plays into, you know, our financial health, our credit scores, our ability for housing, our health, you know, our children and the schools they go to. And it goes on and on and on. That's how serious this is how important it is you might just hear oh well she had some problems at work no this runs deep it runs deep it's it's so serious I can I am a worker bee I'm a hard worker I will figure it out I you know and I discover that and I hear that in my entrepreneurial pursuits all the time right but whenever I was that token oh my gosh the debilitation that I felt and you know the harm that was done, it is just severe. It really is, really is. And I remember proofreading my book and saying, dear God, this is true. Like this, is, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not, this is true. And I went through this and I, there was a part where I apologized to myself, right? But we don't know, we're just trying to survive. It's my livelihood, uh, but it's serious. This message is serious. It's, urgent. It's, you know, I thank someone like you for calling me and giving me a chance to speak. Anybody listening, call me, give me a chance to speak because this is really serious. And the thing about my book that I believe is different, a lot of people, Black women say, oh, it's a book that's going to show us how to get a seat at the table and, and all those things. And I'm like, those books are great. And a lot of people need that, but there's a lot of us, we are soft skilled to death. We are business coached to death. We are, you know, we figured out the hard skills. We've gone to the training we've gone to the, we've done all that. And to be honest with you, there's nothing we can do in a lot of situations. And so this book what makes it different is a couple of things. It's a call to action to leaders. It's a call to action to leaders in this country, especially the white male CEO. And it is an opportunity for leaders to stop and empathize with what their BIPOC marginalized employees are going through. To stop and think about that time that you took the report from your manager or your leader and just dismissed the other side of things. 
you know, to think about how serious it is that you just decided, oh, let them go. Cause you just thought, oh, it's a personality thing or it's, and when you look at how serious it is, um, I like to remind the leader, it goes right back to your return on investment. It goes right back to so much. I mean, just being an ethical person, um, it's important. And so that's what my message is about. It's about them really stopping, taking in a moment and saying, whoa, okay, this is a big deal. And then owning the responsibility that they have the power to make changes. They have the power to listen differently and to put things in place and accountability tactics and they, they have the power. And so here I am giving you the tool here, you know, white man in power and white women. I talk to everybody in the book. I talk to other colleagues. I talk to other marginalized people, other tokens. I talk to white women in particular, chapter eight, which a lot of women are like, oh my gosh, I, I felt myself and it was hard to read, but it changes perceptions and that changes lives, you know, one, one at a time. And so that's what it's about. <clears throat> yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting because when you have a flower that isn't growing well, right, you don't change the flower. Mm -hmm. you change the soil. That's right. And when you can't get flowers to grow at all, you have to look at the environment that you're trying to grow it in. And I see so many people who are in that position. And I wanted to ask you about this too, because the, as you were talking about your experience of writing the book and reading the book again, going, wow, that really did happen. I have to think that with the amount of gaslighting that you probably faced in the corporate space, right? When people would say that's not what it was. It wasn't racism. It wasn't sexism. It, you know, misogynoir is not a thing, right? You're making this up. It's all in your head. I have to imagine that putting it in a book almost brought some sanity to your understanding of what had happened because it made it real. It codified it in a way that it couldn't just be erased or dismissed or waved away not only that here check this out or for I, your readers I got, I got chills when you said that because my so I started the company in remember this was end of 2019 everything got inked and so January through March of 2020 I'm hitting the pavement I hadn't written the book yet but I'm hitting the pavement I've got my message I'm turning deals March 2020 COVID comes and I'm like whoa, I just made this investment. Nobody's going to care anything about, you know, DEI. It's all about this virus. And then I remember in April saying, you know what, get the book written, just get the book written. Don't worry about it. I'm writing the book. And as I'm writing the book, the George Floyd incident happens. And I remember thinking like the next day I had a talk, I was given a presentation and it dawned on me, even in my writing of the book, up until the day the George Floyd incident happened, I was still tiptoeing, code switching, trying to appeal, trying to be nice, holding back, still questioning myself, uncertain. I got to try to over explain it. And it was like, I could cry thinking about it. It was like, whoa awaits and there was like this permission to give it all that I had right and now to even think that I could have written that book and not really given it all like I'm fighting back tears because to push through and get that book out and people say oh you're so vulnerable 
what, why, what I, now is the moment, right? I have to be the woman, the person that I wish I had when I was in corporate America and I got to give it to you straight and I got to give it all. And I got to be honest and I got to be candid and yes, so validating just around the same time, there was an incident with a woman. I always forget her name, but she was out in the park in New York and she blamed, do you remember the name? Yeah. Her name, her first name was Amy. I remember because it was the same as mine. Um, but yeah. I don't remember her last name. Yeah. Well, she, I, I did a video said, thank you because for her to blame. So for anybody who doesn't know, she was in the park and there was a black gentleman doing some bird watching and there was a rule about her dog. I think she, he wanted, should be on a leash and the dog wasn't on a leash. The man politely asked her, can you please put the dog on the leash? She got so furious just because he even said that. And she literally said, and it was on camera, I'm going to call the police and tell them that a black man was bothering me. She turned on the waterworks, went into all of her theatrics, the whole thing. And it was another like, oh, is it just time? Am I in the right timing right now? This is exactly the behavior that I have experienced countless times. This is exactly what drove me <laughs> to th that place. This is exactly why I'm doing this work. And so you want to talk about some validation? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Not only in that, and then having white women say, I read your chapter eight and oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I see it. I get it. Like they couldn't even deny it because at this point they're ready, right? And their hearts have been softened and their minds have been opened and people are ready to be. And so, yeah. And then having other black women say, oh my gosh, I, I relate to it. So there's a level of redemption that I get every single time. And every other day, somebody's emailing me, oh my gosh, your book, it changed my life. And I just feel redeemed over and over and over again. And I, I'm to say that I'm grateful when people see me work, they're like, Oh, I can tell you love this. Listen, I can't believe that here I am. And, but yes, it's so, so redeeming. So redeeming. Well, and I have to think too, for all of the people who are reading your book, who have been in that situation, who have been told all of those things, you're imagining it. It's all in your head. It's not real. How do you know? Are you really sure to have it in black and white in front of them that somebody else has experienced those same things has to be equally validating for them. And that's a real gift you've given to your readers. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you for putting it out there. So I want to go back to this notion of, of what happened last year. So we're recording this in May of 21, the day after the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And, um, you know, like you, I do diversity and inclusion work, um, speak at a lot of events. And I remember this time last year, um, well, March, April of 2020, uh, the two budgets that got cut first were learning and development and diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. and all events got put on hold. And then um, in June, everything kind of came back mm -hmm. um, and it came back with a vengeance because companies saw really quickly that they needed to keep investing in their employees. They needed to keep investing in this work. So can you talk a little bit about your experience with what I'm going to call the great comeback of 2020? Yeah. Um, so for me, it was like, whoa, hang on, you know, I 
just started writing my book. Uh, I'm building some things out. Um, and I almost look at it as it was, what's the word I'm looking for? So, so right, so in March, just before everything closed down, I was at a conference. I was at one of the biggest DEI conferences out in Minneapolis. <laughs> and so, you know, the, of all places. And so I'd flown in and so I'd finished that. And it seems like from that moment on all the way through 2020, I was in a learning conference. I was in this just space of just really intense teaching and training and opportunities to speak and learn and debate and talk. And um, <clears throat> so again, the timing, it always sends chills through my spine. I mean, think about this, November, 2019, I don't wanna live. I start this firm. Uh, it, then it's like, oh no, it's over. Well, but just keep going. And then it's like, oh, boom, here it is again. It's in your face. And the demands are people are just like, come talk, come talk, come talk. And so I, I, again, I'm forever grateful. <laughs> it, it reminded me that my timing is here and, you know, are you ready? And all this time that I went through so much pain, it was like, this is what I was preparing you for. And, um, it's been amazing. Now, tricky, I'm still a new business, right? And if you you know how it is, you got to get out there and you, you still got to get out there and hustle. There's lots of competition. Lots of people started popping up, creating DEI businesses and don't even have a passion for it. That, oh, don't even get me started. Um, I'm with you. Especially those, yeah, that can't even relate. It's like, and you know, I've even had people that would say, oh, you want us to bring you in? We're bringing in Robin D'Angelo. Ha, 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 ha. You know, it's just so... <laughs> So a lot of that has been going on and it's painful when you see that they want to check the boxes rather than actually do the work. I found that to be a big thing too. A lot of them will call and say, I want you to do a training. I want you to do this kind of training and I want you to address this person or that group. And it's like, hmm, my company is a full service company and we love to come in and do assessments. We want to dig in, we want to ask some questions, we want to spend our time getting to know some people, we want to even hear from your vendors and your, your volunteers, any student, like we want to really dig in so that when we go into our consulting, we can give you the honest truth from a non-biased third party. And then we can build your training and build your tools around the very specific things that you are dealing with. When you start to talk to companies about that kind of thing, that's when you start to be able to sift the real from the postures, right? And there's a lot of postures, a lot of posturing what's going on. And it is amazing to me how much money companies will spend on outside consultants, trainers, coaches, whatever, right? To come talk to our whole company or come talk to our whole department and they know what the problem is. And the problem is, you know, Pat in accounting and Pat in accounting is the problem and everybody in accounting knows it and everybody in the C-suite knows it and everybody that's ever dealt with accounting knows it. It's Pat. Mm -hmm. But instead of having a conversation with Pat and holding Pat accountable for their actions, we're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars to bring in contractors or trainers. Fire Pat. Well, you know, <laughs> I think too that a lot of that is, and it's so funny that you, they hang on so much to Pat, but then, you know, they heard that Keisha had a bad day and she's gone, right? Like, right. Honest, right. So uh, another thing that I find is that they know that if Pat 
there's an issue with Pat. Nine times out of 10, they're hanging on to Pat. Pat's been there a long time. She's a person that's walking around talking about culture fit, which is a problem. So she's trying to, you know, she, she does that. What happens is Pat has access to things and she makes things easier for people and the whole nine. And they also know that Pat is tied in with a lot of other people. And so they realize that the things that Pat does, um, if they were to get rid of Pat, to be honest with you, Amy, they know that that would take time, energy, and money even more so than bringing in the trainer. Because when you start talking about making real change, that's when you've got it because, it, because then it's more than just a one-off or a band-aid. It's like, okay, I got to really be committed to getting to the down into the symptom of what's creating the sore here, right? <laughs> I right. Gotta, Why has Pat been allowed to pat for 30 right. years in this company? Exactly. Yep. <laughs> right. And then, and then we know that when Pat's pulled up, all kind of other stuff, all kind of, you know, the cat's going to be out the bag. And it's like, it's so much easier just to say, oh, Keisha, there's a, you know, problem with you, you go, or it's so much easier to move people around or to sit pat over here, or, you know, and you then to learn how to work with people with strong personalities. Strong mm-hmm. personalities is my favorite euphemism for that person's toxic. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So I think that companies want to do what's easy. And like you said, just bring in a trainer. When you start to say, I have a problem, uh, marginalized people are not treated well, things aren't fair. When you start to have a company that says, are they being paid fairly? Are they being, it's almost like, oh, so now we've got to admit that. Now we've got to dig in and show our dirty laundry. It's easier to keep Pat because Pat helps us to keep the dirty laundry hidden, right? Um, and it's cheaper and, and we think it's easier, although we keep having all this turnover and we just keep blaming it on everything else, you know, because we just don't want to look at the symptom. We just don't want to talk about that, that stuff. We don't want to go there. Um, but it's my message is always that it's just time. It's time to go there because it's so serious. Um, if we want equality in this country, and I know that I won't see it the way that I dream of it in my lifetime. And so I work hard every day to talk to leaders every day. Any chance I get to speak, I take it because I want this to be better for those that are coming behind me. I want them to think, wow, that was so barbaric, <laughs> you know, that they had to go through that because of, and so there has to be a desire for real deep change. There has to be an acceptance that that means there needs to be sacrifices when it comes to time and money. All of these companies are creating these ERGs and saying, Hey, marginalized folks, BIPOC folks, here, do a group and tell us how to make life better for you and spend time doing that. And we don't have money. It's not just volunteer your personal time to overcommit and overachieve and not be recognized and not be given the resources to do what we're asking you to do. To tell us that we're wrong for doing that, but don't really tell us that because we're the ones that are managing it and but we're going to act like it and we're going to go through emotions and we're going to put that on our statement and say that that's something we do. Yeah. Are you kidding me? There needs to be an announcement that your marginalized people, your BIPOC people, their time is already way more limited than yours to begin with. Yeah, kind of they got to be twice. They got to be twice as good. Come on. Twice as good. Come on. Just to keep that's- that seat. Yeah, we don't have the help at home. We're taking care of parents 
and children. We are driving longer distances. We have more health. Like it, so now you're adding on to the problem because you just yeah. can't wrap around your brain that you need to make that sort of investment in this change. That's what it's going to take. And I feel, and I, my hope is that when you read my message and it's not so, it's not so um, businessy and, 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 and all of that is that there's this light bulb that goes off and says, oh, a human being. Like, Cause I start out with the book, like talking through my childhood. I want you to see me as a human and to say, oh, a human being had to experience that. And that hurt. And oh gosh, I can see maybe she wasn't that happy at work the next day after somebody beat her over the head until that light bulb switches on, there will be resistance to making the needed investment in this change. Mm. You know, as you're talking, it reminds me, Zach Nunn is the founder of Living Corporate, um, who distributes this podcast or, you know, who uh, produces this podcast. And he has this tweet that he'll send out periodically and he'll say, man, I just want us to be free. Mm-hmm. And it's really as simple as that, right? Just the freedom to just be. That's it. Mm-hmm. Just to exist without that threat of, mm-hmm. you know, of violence, of financial ruin, of reputation, you know, mm-hmm. uh, attack, right? Of all of these things that, you know, that white folks take for granted at work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I can have a bad day at work. People will forgive it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's freedom, right? That there's just a freedom to just be human. That's right. Oh, Tally, I'm just, I'm so grateful you're out here doing this work, serving it up in pastel colors and a little ice cream dish <laughs> so people can, <laughs> so people but, can consume it. But, you know, I, I want you to know it's not always sweet, right? But no, the- it can't be. It's not always sweet. Um, but the thing is, I want to be the place where if you're going to take it down bitter, you can take it from me because you at least know that it's coming from a sweet place. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and people, that's hard for people to hear. Like I want you, and I do this one-on-one anti-racism coaching with leaders. And, and that's what I, again, they get a chance to get to know a black woman and um, get to share the real thoughts and fears and apprehensions and I get to share how that makes me feel and my perspective and it's some of my favorite work to do but um yeah I think that I I don't sugarcoat the message that's I want to be very clear about that um but I'm going to be sweet enough to reel you in and that sweetness is real and after I get through correcting you I can return back to the sweetness right uh and and I just want to be very clear about that No, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So I do have a question for you about this move to entrepreneurship because it can be lonely out here. Mm -hmm. Where do you find community? Yeah. So oddly enough, I've been an, I've been an entrepreneur for years before this. I've done entrepreneurial things. Let's put it like that. Um, But I'd always give up because the lack of loans and lack of support. That's a whole nother layer of systemic racism. Um, But I, again, I think because of the timing, my support was almost presented to me, you know, like it was, and because I chose to take my story and be very honest about what I had gone through and how I arrived at that position, people flocked to me. 
people flock to me. When I was getting ready to uh, publish my book, people flocked to help me from, you know, promo pics to doing the cover, to the editing, to, I have no shortage of people that have extended themselves to me of all races, of all colors, creeds that want to embrace what it is that I'm doing and carry me. And I always say a lot of times, like they've been the wind beneath my wings. And there've been times when I didn't know that I would make it, um, in every capacity, emotionally, financially, physically, um, just strategically, but, um, community always shows up. And one community in particular in the Seattle area, uh, the F-Bomb Breakfast Club um, is a group of women that um, network and Megan McNally is um, the founder of the F-Bomb Breakfast Club. She does a wonderful job of just finding ways to make it way better than your typical like networking group. You know, we've got a billion of them. This particular group, it just gives you, if you work it, it will work for you. You know what I mean? And so I found a lot of, positive friendships and business buddies and, and things of that nature within that group. And I'm just so busy. I'm always meeting people, always, 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 you know, out talking, chatting. And so that's, it's been good for me. It's been good for me. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you have, you know, you have your people, right. That, mm-hmm. that lift you up, mm-hmm. that keep you going um, mm-hmm. and that pour into you. Mm-hmm. Tally, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing your message authentically, bravely. Um, it's so needed. And I'm just, I'm so glad uh, that you're out here doing what you do, being you. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me, Amy. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Break Room. Have you ever felt burnt out, depressed, or otherwise exhausted by being one of the onlys at work? You know what I'm talking about. Hosted by black psychologists, psychiatrists, and PhDs, The Break Room is a live weekly web show in the Living Corporate Network that discusses mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. Name another weekly show explicitly focused on mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. I'll wait. This is why you got to check out The Break Room, airing every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on livingcorporate.tv. What'd you think about Tally? Isn't she amazing? I want to read you just a short excerpt from her book, uh, Confessions from Your Token Black Colleague. This is what she wrote in her book. Quote, We should no longer be tasked with the responsibility to assimilate and fit into a culture our white colleagues have created and continue to safeguard. Our double-bind struggle to fit in while also being true to ourselves shouldn't hinder our ability to contribute to your business objectives. I am so blown away with Tally's story, with her courage, with her authenticity, uh, with how vulnerable she is in explaining her journey. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Living Corporate and share us with your friends and colleagues. And you can really help us out by leaving a six-star review wherever you get your podcasts. If you're new here, you might be thinking, Amy, there are only five stars. Well, give us all those. But then go the next step by leaving a couple sentences in your own words, telling us what you liked about the guest, the episode, or the series. Don't forget to visit living-corporate.com to learn more about our other podcasts, videos, web shows, and more. 
See It to Be It is brought to you in part by Lead at Any Level, a certified woman and LGBTQ-owned business dedicated to helping organizations turn their reclusive nerds into inclusive leaders. Lead at Any Level, leaders can be anywhere and should be everywhere. Learn more at leadatanylevel.com. That's it for this week's episode of See It to Be It. This is Amy C. Wanninger, and I'll see you next week. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.